Scripture reading this morning that Pastor Tony will be speaking on comes from the book of Mark, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go out to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell, this, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled, fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. The Christian Bible comes in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to the coming Messiah, the Christ, the one sent from God to redeem the world. The New Testament begins with four Gospels, four stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which record what happened when that Messiah came into the world. We have been looking at the Gospel of Mark, the shortest and most vivid of the Gospels, uh, based on the, the memories and the experience of Peter. And we would got halfway through, here we jump to the very end of the Gospel, the last verses of the Gospel, because it's Easter, and this is where Peter tells us what happened after Jesus' crucifixion. So let's have a look at it. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalena, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. The twelve disciples deserted Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was arrested and dragged away uh, to be scourged and mocked and crucified. The women who had followed Jesus down from Galilee to Jerusalem were the only ones to stay with him. They followed Jesus to the cross. They saw him getting crucified. They followed the body to the grave. And they take on here the familial responsibility of anointing his dead body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stole away, stone away from the entrance of the tomb? First day of the week. The pre when Jesus was uh, crucified, it was the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday. The uh, Christians, because Jesus was raised on the first day of the week, changed their Sabbath to Sunday, this, the day that we celebrate. Uh, it became the first day of the Christian calendar and the celebration day. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right, right side, and they were alarmed. Angels, and this is an angel, are pretty rare in the Bible. They don't show up that often in all the three, four thousand years of history that the Bible covers. 
When they do show up for Abraham, for Moses, here at Jesus, they show up at his birth and at his death, they have a purpose. Angels are God's messengers. They are the ones that show up to ensure that fallible human beings do not miss the point. Angels are guides to the truth. They're the ones who point to what has just happened, explain it, and make sure that nobody loses the point. There's no misinterpretation. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they had laid him. Angels are terrifying. They are God's holy presence. And the first thing they always say is, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. Don't freak out. Every time they show up, people are terrified. Because God is terrifying. Because God is holy. That means perfect. And we are not. A human being meeting God is like a snowman meeting a bonfire. You don't last very long. It is terrifying. And what does the angel say? He is risen. Jesus has been resurrected. He is no longer dead. His body is not here. See the place where they laid him. The angel is ensuring that the women understand their role. They are being explicitly guided to see the place and be the first witnesses to what has happened in that tomb. He is risen. This is the great challenge of Easter. Not only a challenge to our belief and our understanding, but a challenge to the world. Everybody loves Christmas. Christmas is spreading all over the world. Cute babies, food, presents, sweetness and light. Who doesn't love Christmas? But Easter... Easter is much tougher. Easter is dangerous. Rising from the dead is not cute. It is awesome. It is challenging. If it is true, everything changes. Why? Because it says that death is not ultimate. Death is not final. And that is a challenge to all the tyrants, all the bullies, Everyone in the world who rules by force and the threat of death. It is a challenge to human power, to earthly power, to tyrants in all times and ages. You know, whenever and wherever the Roman legions went out when they conquered the world, they took a cross with them. The cross was a Roman symbol. It was easy to make. Soldiers could knock it together very easily. You could put it up anywhere you went, and it was terrible. And it had a very simple and straightforward message. We are now in charge. Pay your taxes. Obey Caesar. And if you don't, you're going to be crucified. And it's going to be terrible. It's going to hurt. And it'll be the end of you. And wherever the Romans went, they took the cross with them. It was a symbol of Roman power. Brutal, simple, easy to interpret. What did Jesus do with that cross? 
that terrible instrument of torture and death is transformed into something of great beauty. Many people wear it around their neck as jewelry, as a sign of beauty. Because Jesus and God on the cross transformed the meaning of that cross. They took away the power of death. They challenged all who would use the cross as a symbol of power and tyranny. It showed that God can transform anything, even a cross, even death, into something good. And so the power of the cross is not just a, a challenge to those who are tyrants. It is also a challenge and a promise to those who are being oppressed by evil, by tyrants, by bullies, by force. Because the cross says, this is not ultimate, this is not the end. God can transform your suffering, what is evil in the world, into something good. It is a bigger reality breaking into our world and showing that there is more to our world showing that there is something else, some other power, and that that power is good, that it is the power of life, and it can transform the bad, evil things in our world into something beautiful. But go, the angel says, tell his disciples, and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Remember, Peter is the one on which the Gospel of uh, Mark was based. Mark John was um, a follower of Peter after the resurrection when he was a leader in the early church. Peter was an illiterate fisherman. He never went to school. He could not write, and therefore he dictated his memoirs to um, John Mark, and that's the Gospel we have in front of us. But notice, Peter head of the disciples, the rock on which Christ builds his church, records here that it was women who first brought the news of Jesus' resurrection to him. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Women were the first witnesses. Peter depended on them going to the tomb for him to be able to interpret what had happened. That is a striking fact. There was a, a column in um, the New York Times for Easter by Ross Duthat, and he says this. The men fled, the women stayed. That's the story of Easter. That's the story of Easter weekend in the New Testament. Most of Jesus' male disciples vanished when the trouble started leaving his mother and Mary Magdalene and other women to watch by the cross, prepare his body for burial, and then, with the men still basically in hiding, find the empty tomb. Male absence and female energy has also been the story, albeit less starkly and dramatically, of Christian practice in many times and places since. Today, most Christian churches and denominations in America, conservative as well as liberal, male-led and female-led, have some sort of gender gap. 
sometimes modest, but often stark. Despite their varying theologies, evangelicalism, mainline Protestantism, Catholicism, all have about a 50, 55 to 45 female to male split. For black churches, it's 60% female and 40% male. Why would that be? You know, it starts right here at the very beginning when the women witness Christ's resurrection. Now, the Bible does not explicitly say, and anything that I said would reveal more about my beliefs and stereotypes than it would about what the Bible says. Ross offers some possibilities. Women are somehow naturally more religious than men. Jesus' dim view of violence is particularly off-putting to the male of the species. There's been some kind of cultural shift, a feminine turn in medieval piety, or the separation of sexes in the Industrial Revolution, the late modern turn away from martial religious language. One commentator to Ross's column said this, Perhaps women are attracted to Jesus because he represents dreams and values that are not present or allowed in male-dominated reality. Take your pick. Your opinion is good as anyone's. We don't know why it was the women rather than the men. We don't know why the Christian church has always been more attractive to women than men. But what we can say is that this is a striking fact about the gospel. In that time and place, 2,000 years ago, women were not valued. They had a lesser status than men. They had a status somewhere around slaves and children. Women had no, their testimony had no legal weight in a court case. The testimony of a woman could not be used against the testimony of a man. They were not valid witnesses. They had no weight or credibility. If you were trying to prove something, you would not use the testimony of a woman. In fact, early pagan critics of Christianity said that it was all based on hysterical female daydreams. Christianity could be denied, rejected, because the witnesses were women. Why are they here in this story? If the Gospels were a human invention, if they had been written by the male disciples just based on their own ideas, then the first witnesses would have been men. They would have been disciples because men are valuable. Their legal testimony is worth something. They are reliable witnesses. The only good reason to put women in this story is because they really were there. This really was what happened. The tomb was empty. Jesus did rise. His body was not there. And the first witnesses were three women. Who could come up with that story? Not the patriarchal society and the men back then. They didn't care about women. They weren't trying to be politically correct. They genuinely did not care about women. Who cared about women back then? who created men and women equally, who is the only possible source of this valuation of women and their witness and their testimony. 
I'd argue that it's the only possible source is God. He created male and female. He values and valued them then equally. Jesus is risen not just for men, but for women. And to me, it is the greatest single confirmation that this is not a human story or human invention. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because they had just been confronted with something that literally blew their minds. Their minds were boggled. Their worldview smashed. Their common sense and the idea of how things work was completely shattered. People back 2,000 years ago were not stupid. They weren't more credulous than we are. They know that people don't just raise from the dead. They know that dead bodies don't just come to life. They had no way of thinking about what they'd just been told, what they had just been seen. And in fact, it was not until they and the disciples met the risen Jesus, they saw him walking, talking, eating, and teaching, it's only then that they began to believe and understand what would happen, what had just happened began to understand not only his resurrection, but what happened on the cross. So what did happen on the cross? What does the resurrection mean? Well, the Apostle Paul put it this way. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Death has lost its sting. Death has lost its ultimate power. Christ on the cross defeated death. His life transcends the power of death. You'll sometimes hear people saying that death is natural, even necessary. That death is just part of the circle of life. Don't believe that. That is a lie straight from hell. It is not true. Any of you who have ever experienced the death of someone you love, you know that that's not true. Death is the extinguishing of a life. It is the taking away of everything that is good. It is not right. It is not good. It is not necessary. And Jesus came to fight it. Death is the greatest evil in our world because it takes away life, the life of people that we love. Death is an abomination. Death unmakes God's creation. Human beings are God's creation. He made us. Death unmakes us, and we bear his image, and therefore death is blasphemous. It is anti-God. It is anti-creation. It is anti-life, and it is anti-human. And Christ came to fight it for us. And that's the power of his resurrection. Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a healer. Jesus is a hero. He fought the one that we could not fight, death. He stood up when we could not and cannot. And that's why resurrection, that's why Easter, that's why the cross is so powerful.
In a moment, we're going to go to this table, the Lord's table. The Bible begins in Genesis with the first meal. It's the moment that Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, and the long exile of the human race into darkness and death begins. But if you read to the end of the Bible, it ends in the book of Revelation. And there, there is the promise of a wedding feast, where God and man will be united together forever. And Jesus says that this table, his table, set at his cost, is a glimpse of that future. This is the promise of his resurrection. Because this bread is his body on that cross, now alive again. This cup was his spirit that now is accessible to us. The resurrection, the cross, Easter, they confront the world, but they confront each one of us. What do you believe? When we come to this table, if you believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross for you, that he died on the cross for you, that he defeated death for you, and if you're willing to put your faith in him and follow him, this table promises that he will lead you home. This table says you will be part of that feast. This table says that life is eternal. And when it is restored to you, there will be no more death, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, and you will never ever lose the things and the people that you love ever again. It's all contained in Easter. When we come to this table, I want you to think about that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Is he risen for you? Are you coming to him in faith? Are you following him? Are you celebrating Easter today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a hero, not an example. We will never be like you. But we don't have to be, because you have gone first. You have defeated death. You are leading us home. All we have to do is trust and put our faith in you. We thank you for that truth. We thank you in your son's name, Jesus Christ, the name that has power over life and death, who is our true Lord. Amen. As we continue to worship right now, before we go to the table, we're going to receive an offering. The offering is a chance for members of our church and friends of our church to support the ministries of our church. If you're a guest or a visitor, please don't feel obliged to give. Think about what you've heard. Enjoy the music.
the Lord's 